Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. For once, on Wednesday morning, we can talk about the big things that happened on Tuesday night. There were two votes. They pointed in different directions. We're going to try and work out which way Brexit is heading now. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So I'm delighted that we've got a full house of expertise to try and work this one out. We have Catherine Barnard, expert on EU law, Chris Brooke, expert on political theory and some of the inner workings of the UK electoral system, Helen Thompson, expert on political economy and much else besides. Normally, I'm saying this to Catherine because when we've done this in the past, we've started with the law and worked our way to the politics. Today, we're going to start with the politics and work our way to the law because last night was pretty raw politics. In a way, I think we can start with a fairly blunt question. There were two votes. One vote was won by the government. One vote was lost by the government. The vote that was won was on the second reading a withdrawal agreement bill, and it was won by 30 votes relatively comfortably. The one that was lost was on the timetabling. We will not now leave on the 31st of October. It's always a bit, <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now getting a look, but I think we probably won't. So the first question in a way is, as we look forward, which of these is the more significant vote? Do you have a sense, maybe we'll start with Helen, do you have a sense of which one of these in the long run will be seen to have mattered more? I think... The obvious answer is is that the first one, in the sense as that for the first time there was a majority in the House of Commons that voted for some part of a withdrawal agreement. Obviously, I say some part because there are people who probably voted for it with the intention of then trying to amend it in ways that might make it unworkable. And I think... I'm right in saying then that's the first time since the Brady Amendment that the House of Commons has positively voted for anything, if you include the attempts at meaningful votes and the indicative votes. So that seems like there's something that's growing in the political constituency within the House of Commons willing to support leaving the European Union in an orderly way. But if I'm to make the sceptical point, yeah. you could argue that that was another of those classic votes where a number of people were able to vote in a way they would not ultimately vote because they thought it wasn't finally decisive. Just, and after all, the difference between the two votes were those crucial Labour MPs, who it's very hard for me still to see actually getting this over the line. Well, then I was going to say that if you look at it from the point of view of the people who are trying to stop Brexit, that was another tactical victory that was won in the second vote because... I think that it's becoming clearer that the stop Brexit people have a s- tactics without a strategy. And the strategy is simply to keep playing tactically until time opens up more opportunities would be a better way of putting that. Now, how long that can continue and whether there is an end game to that, I think that is not entirely clear. I mean, my instinct is, is that there isn't, that they will run out of time in the end. But given that the strategy such as it is relies on playing for time, then they succeeded last night. I think the, the second vote was the important one. Certainly it's the case that the government has reason to be pleased with aspects of how the last 10 days or so have gone. 
lots of people didn't expect Boris Johnson to agree a withdrawal agreement with the European Union. It is genuinely surprising, I think, that he's managed to get the entire Conservative Party to vote for his deal. That is a remarkable outcome since very recently the Conservative Party looked seriously split on the issue. He's made it easy for himself by the purge of almost two dozen Conservatives who have broken the whip on important votes recently. But nevertheless, to get all the Conservatives voting in the lobby for the second reading was was quite an impressive achievement. But having said that, people who followed the debate on Saturday and who looked at the voting figures on Saturday were reasonably confident that there was a notional majority in favour of the withdrawal agreement of some kind in the House of Commons. So while I think the vote on the second reading last night is of symbolic importance, I don't think it tells us much more of substance that we didn't know before. And the vote on the programme motion shows that when the Labour Party cracks the whip, there are only four or five MPs, including Kate Hoey and John Mann, who will never vote with the Labour leadership on these issues. There are only five MPs, Labour MPs, who can be relied upon to vote against the Labour whip. The Labour whipping operation is still working, and that means it's not credible to see a withdrawal agreement, I think, going through this House of Commons. There's a paradox here, isn't there, that Boris Johnson has managed to get the ERG to trust him. The trouble is, the other side, and that includes SNP, Lib Dems, do not trust him, which is why we've got the Ben Act in the first place. And the Ben Act really has changed the dynamic. The Ben Act did force um, Boris Johnson into negotiating, I think, as we indicated it might do. And of course, it's ultimately, I think, in the his interest, because it's in the country's interest, not to be leaving without some form of deal. I think collectively, the political classes looked over the edge of the cliff and saw just how ghastly it would be in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And so that combined effect, and also a great bit of salesmanship to say this is Boris Johnson's deal and is thus very exciting and new when in fact actually it's 90% Theresa May's deal with some really complicated changes in respect of the Northern Ireland non-backstop now it's what people call the front stop but actually it, it is the position for Northern Ireland which as a small footnote raises a legal point because it's going to be the position for Northern Ireland why on earth are they doing under Article 50 because Article 50 is only about the divorce and not about the future relationship. Got some so law in there. Trying to hold the line on politics. I'm going to get back to yeah. politics. We are going to get to what's actually in the in the withdrawal agreement bill. But there is a just a straight question now. A lot depends on what the Europeans do. Donald Tusk has indicated that they are minded to agree the extension that was requested in the Ben Act, notwithstanding the fact that Johnson would like to pretend that this was a parliamentary request and not a government request. It came from ultimately, from the government's photocopying machine. If there is an agreement to the 31st, we'll come on to other possible scenarios, but to the 31st of January, the question would be, could this get through the House of Commons in that time? Because Tusk has also indicated that the extension would fall away if the legislation was passed. And that then means it's a question about, could those people who voted for the second reading but didn't vote for the timetable, particularly those 14 Labour MPs, Could anything persuade them to get on board? Now, I don't see what could. I completely agree with Chris. If you look at this consistently over time, there are a number of Labour MPs who will go on TV and say they support Brexit, who will vote for things that aren't Brexit, but signal to their constituents that they're not blocking Brexit. They've done nothing to indicate that they would put themselves in the position of being responsible for this Brexit happening, unless 
there was a realistic threat of a worse alternative. And if we extend to the 31st of January, there isn't a realistic threat of a worse alternative. Now, if the Europeans were to come back and say, we're giving you two weeks, then the Ben Act kicks in. Then Parliament, I mean, I'm looking at Catherine here, actually, because then, as I understand it, Parliament has to vote to approve any extension, which is not the 31st, according to the terms, 31st of January, according to the terms of the Ben Act. But of course, say in a scenario, I don't think it's going to happen, but say the French or whoever say, we'll give them 10 days. It then has to go to Parliament to agree that extension. Parliament refuses to agree that extension. We leave on the 31st of October, because that's still or, or the we, default. Or we revoke or exactly, or we revoke. So Macron could still do the nightmare thing, which is force us to choose between no deal and revoke. But assuming that that doesn't happen, and actually there's three months, in those three months, unless I'm missing something, I cannot see what Johnson has to hold over either the independent Tories who are not going to support this legislation or the Labour people who will support it in principle but not in practice. What has he got over them? Well, I think that the independent Tories, most of them are going to support it. I mean, you, if you look at the, the number of people who were not supporting that on the second reading, it was down to three who certainly aren't. But it's not clear to me that any of the independent Tories who did vote for the withdrawal agreement but didn't vote for the programme motion, how many of them are really going to support amendments that are trying to derail the treaty. I do think that there's something that has changed for the Labour MPs in the Leave position, and that is is that Labour policy has changed. This is why it's not quite like it was back in March, because Labour has moved from being a party that was supporting essentially a Labour Brexit, that was what Corbyn's pitch was, to a party that is now committed to a second referendum. Now, the view that Corbyn takes of what that second referendum could be on is obviously different than what some others, including what Keir Starmer thinks. So Keir Starmer seems open to having a referendum that would be this withdrawal agreement versus Remain, whereas Corbyn still seems to be holding on to the hope, which is technically Labour Party policy from the conference, that you would have a general election with a Labour government that would renegotiate and then you would have a, a referendum on a Labour negotiated withdrawal agreement. Now, that's pie in the sky. It's not going to happen. So really, that means that those Labour MPs who want to support leaving the European Union, really, the only path to leaving the European Union is now through a Conservative negotiated withdrawal agreement. So either that they have to back that, or they are, in the end, going to oppose leaving the European Union. And that isn't quite the choice they had earlier in the year. But could they back it unamended? Because that's the other thing. Because the other way that this could get derailed is that they can continue, quote unquote, to back it, but only with certain amendments attached. And again, that gives them a get out. I think we're still in that position as we've been all the way along with Brexit, which is until people are given an either or choice and the or is something that they can't stomach, they will not make the final decision. And I don't see how that has changed unless there is a shorter deadline than the 31st of January. Going back to what Helen said a moment ago, I think, I mean, there is something Boris Johnson can offer the independent Conservatives if he needs to, and that's the restoration of the whip, daring at the end of their political careers in almost all cases when the general election is called. And if they play nice with Boris Johnson, there is a way in which he can have them readmitted to the to the Conservative Party. On the Labour side, I don't think as much has changed as Helen suggests Again, I think the shift in Labour policy is largely symbolic. I mean, imagine even with the old policy that Labour had won a general election, is it plausible to imagine 
Jeremy Corbyn, let's say, implausibly with an overall parliamentary minority, but maybe not a large one, you know, going through what Theresa May has been negotiating, but dealing with the Labour Party. It's always seemed implausible to me that the Labour Party, whose members and activists are overwhelmingly Remainers, would sit quietly by and watch a Labour government negotiate a withdrawal agreement, a Labour government would head for the same kind of purgatory that Theresa May's government was caught in. So I, I think, again, the shift in Labour policy, it, 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 the headline policy has changed. I'm not sure the underlying the, politics have. The issue is is that the pretense has changed. So it was possible to believe before, in a, I think, a deluded way, that there was a route to a Labour-negotiated Brexit. That illusion that Lisa Nandy or even Dennis Skinner, though Dennis Skinner seems to still to believe it from the things that he says, it's very difficult to see how they can pretend that that's true any longer. No, absolutely. The fundamental problem with all of that is it's not clear to me the EU would put the time into renegotiating yet another deal. I mean, the exasperation with the UK shouldn't be underestimated. Macron this morning is making cross noises to say, harumph, we're not going to give an extension. I suspect they will eventually because there is still a real concern about the blame game and the EU don't want to be blamed for the UK accidentally now crashing out on the 31st of October. But the problem is they know and we know that we'll have another three months and we'll be back in having almost identical conversations in January. So I think we've done quite well to get this far without talking about the E word, an election. But that seems to me the other obvious complication here, which is when people are thinking about scenarios they can and can't live with, there's before and after a a possible election. And again, for these Labour MPs, yes, there might be scenarios that are relatively unpalatable for them, but that's conditional on a certain kind of result coming from this election. And all MPs now, including the Conservatives who've lost the whip, are thinking about their careers inevitably. I mean, I don't think there's anything dishonourable about that. If there's an election looming, it's going to be a brutal election if it comes. You want to hold on to your seat, you've got to start thinking now about the conditions under which you could do that. And again, I think these Labour MPs in leave seats are positioning themselves for that. To be seen to get Johnson's Brexit over the line is potentially career-ending for them. To be seen to have blocked Brexit is potentially career-ending for them. But there is still a space for them to dance on, and they can dance for the next three months on that space, which is why I, I can feel like I go back to what I was saying almost two years ago. This parliament doesn't get this thing resolved, an election's coming sooner or later. I thought it was sooner. It's a lot later than I thought. But are we really? do we really see any way out of this in the next two to three months that doesn't require an election? There's a question about whether Labour will allow it, but if you know, other things being equal... Can we get there without an election? Uh, I'm past I'm pass knowing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that if you look at the situation in which the people who would like Brexit to happen but don't want their hands on it, so to speak, I think that it's not quite the same for the reasons for some of the reasons I've been saying earlier as it was the last time we were in this position. And I do think it is important to see that the politics of the situation has changed because there wasn't really I think a, a great fear in back in you know like March that when an election came that it was going to lead to a conservative majority now I'm not suggesting that it necessarily will lead to a conservative majority but there must be a reasonable chance now that it's going to lead to a conservative majority and then we've got to think I think in terms of the election as well about the fact that we we still would seem to have a government that couldn't actually win a majority 
in the House of Commons on a confidence vote because it has clearly lost the support of the DUP. Although I think I'm right in saying they haven't formally repudiated the supply and confidence, it clearly doesn't they exist. They look like they're pretty cross, so <laughs> let's assume it, that... It doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. And indeed, if, if they had voted or even abstained last night, the programme motion would have been different. Certainly if they voted if they voted with it, the government, then the programme motion yeah, would have they, been... If they'd abstained, it was more than 10. Yeah, so if they'd abstained, yeah. it would still have yeah, gone down. But if they'd voted with the government, it would have gone through. And we're up against the fact that we've got a Queen's speech that's supposed to have a vote. We've got a budget coming up, which means a finance bill's got to get through. I'm pretty sure you, if you end up not being able to pass a finance bill, at a certain point, you run into the fact that you can't authorise expenditure. So the question of the election now is, again, both, I think, because of the domestic balance of public opinion, but also because of the situation that we're now in with a government without a majority, not where we were. And I'm not sure that any of the people making judgments about how to respond to this can be quite clear how this plays out if we don't have an election. Yes, so there is a question if we don't have an election, whether we have a government at all. There is also in the background of this, not just we have a different political leader in Boris Johnson relative to May. There wasn't a fear of facing May at the ballot box because they'd done that and they know how to do it. With Johnson, it is the unknown. He might turn out to be a hopeless campaigner. He may well not. We don't know. Corbyn, who had a good election last time, may have a less good one this time. But I think Chris's point is the really important one. The thing that has changed in the last 10 days since Johnson got a deal is he can go to the country with his deal. Whereas before, he was going to have to go to the country threatening no deal. And that could have split the Conservative Party. And as things stand, there will still have to be an implicit no deal threat in there, which is if you elect us and we have a majority in Parliament, we can then at least hold to the 31st of January deadline with no deal in the background. But that danger, which was really acute, and a lot of Tory MPs were coming out, not the ones who'd lost the whip, but others saying that they were really uncomfortable about a manifesto with a strong no deal commitment in it, that has gone, and it is a completely remarkable thing in these circumstances. I believe it's 285 current sitting members of the Conservative Party went through the lobbies, not just on the first vote, but on the second one as well. That is a very united party. We always talk about, do the old rules still apply? One old rule is, united parties defeat divided parties. There is, of course, still the practical problem of how you actually get to having an election, which shouldn't be overlooked. Of course, we've discussed endlessly the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, the fact you need two-thirds majority. Labour aren't keen, despite the rhetoric, not least because the polling is not good for them. And today it shows really quite a significant lead for the Conservatives. Talk about having voted no confidence in themselves, i.e. by the Tories, possibly going through. But then that gives Jeremy Corbyn the opportunity to say, look, I can form a government in the intervening two weeks. So that comes with its own risks. And, and um, he conceivably could form a government if you look at the arithmetic. Absolutely. Or the other Although route, the Tories wouldn't support it. But I mean, mathematically, mm-hmm, he could. He yeah. could at least claim to be given the chance to try. Or the other route is that Boris Johnson tries to get up with the so-called one-line bill through Parliament to change the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, could possibly get that through with the help of the SNP. But, of course, the moment you start putting bills through Parliament, we see they become decorated with all sorts of amendments, and this is also a high-risk strategy for him. Final, very practical point, it's the winter and we're heading towards Christmas. Mark Sedwell, Cabinet Secretary, has already said we can't have an election after the 12th of December because all the church halls are booked for Christmas parties, and also the public aren't keen. Their minds are on other things in December, not politics. We might be obsessed, but most of the general public are not. And I always wonder with that thing, the public aren't keen, but 
if the public aren't keen, it doesn't matter as long as they're not keen in a kind of ecumenical way. It's always that thought that holding elections somehow will benefit one party rather than the other when the public aren't keen. Again, I think there are reasons for Labour to be afraid of the public not being keen because there will be a section of the public that still are keen, which are the section that want to get Brexit done. There were mutterings yesterday that a winter election in Scotland would be particularly bad and people would blame the Tories. They're going to blame the Tories anyway in Scotland. I mean, I think the SNP are kind of okay with a winter election in Scotland. So I think it could happen, but Labour might take some persuading. The, the mutterings this morning is that Labour have decided that once the extension is there, they will go for it. And we do, got a glimpse of what the Tory election strategy will be in the at the dispatch box yesterday from Johnson, where he said, I will go to the country and it will be get Brexit done versus two more referendums. That's what he said. If you vote Labour, you will get two more referendums, an EU one and a Scottish one, because by implication, they're going to do a deal with the SNP. That's the strategy. If I was Labour, I'd be a bit scared of that. One thing that we haven't, I think, had clear sight of yet is whether Nigel Farage will get traction with his assault on the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson has negotiated. It's true that the Conservative Party in Parliament is united on the deal. It's also interesting because for the last two or three years, we've had very strong unionist rhetoric coming out of the Conservative Party. Theresa May saying that she couldn't imagine a British Prime Minister who could agree to putting a customs border down the IRC and so on. People in the European Research Group have been making very DUP-sounding noises about the importance of the integrity of the United Kingdom and so on. And what we've seen, unsurprisingly for people who've studied the history of the Conservative Party, is that when push comes to shove, the unionism is a card, it's the Ulster card, it's played for tactical effect, and that's why the DUP is in such a bad mood now. It will be interesting to see whether Farage can whip up some unionist fervour and use that as the wedge to attack the withdrawal agreement. It may be that he can't. It may be that the United Conservative Party in Parliament is also matched by a United Conservative Party in the country, is matched by a United Conservative electorate. But with all the focus on Parliament in the last few days, in the last couple of weeks, we haven't really, I think, got a sense of how the Brexit Party will react to all of this. And it's still the biggest potential fly in the ointment for Boris Johnson's electoral strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think that that this does matter because although that the Conservative Party has been quite successful in pushing the Brexit Party back since the European Parliament elections, they're still stubbornly around 10, 12%. Now, there's no more than UKIP were getting, indeed got 12% in the 2015 election, which yielded them one seat. So, under the first past the post system, it's not clear how much damage that can do to the Conservative Party, but the, certainly it can't get much higher without there being significant risk to the Conservatives. Having said that, I do think if we try and explain what's happened politically over the last six months or so, we can say that the Conservatives have recovered much better from the position both parties got into after the 31st of March deadline passed, which basically, if you remember before that, both parties were polling around the 40%. And then by the time we went into the European Parliament elections, we ended up with a Conservative Party that didn't even manage 9%, it was 8 point something, a Labour Party which got about 14%, Brexit Party was ahead with 30%, and the Liberal Democrats were around I think it was 19 or 20. So if you say what's happened since then is is that the Labour Party has got back into the sort of 23, 24, 
the Conservative Party's heading back towards 40. It's not quite there. It's coming out to 37, 38. Now, if you look at it from the point of view of Labour, it isn't just that they haven't recovered anywhere near as well as, as the Conservatives have from the European Parliament elections, but they haven't actually dislodged the Liberal Democrats at all for where the Liberal Democrats were at that point. Indeed, in some polls, Liberal Democrats are doing better than what they were doing in the European Parliament elections. What Labour seems to have done is got those green voters back from the European Parliament election. So I think if you look at it in those terms, is the Conservatives have had a radical recovery and the Labour Party hasn't, and that is a problem for Labour. And I think if this election comes, we'll see two things tested that were conventional wisdom and may not turn out to be true, one of which is it'll be terrible for Johnson to have a TV broadcast or whatever in which, and I've seen them already on Twitter, you can just string together 27 times where he said 31st of October, 31st of October. That could be the Brexit party. Will that work? I'm not sure it will. I mean, I think people aren't kind of going to be completely taken in. And I think the Conservatives have a reasonable line of defence, which did everything in his power to do it. And in the end, if you want to finally get it done, you're going to need to vote for him. And then on the other side, what we don't know is the extent to which Remain Britain has now a creeping fatalism that this is going to happen. So if it was just, you've got to do everything in your power to stop it, and therefore you're probably your only chance is a Labour government. But if there is a creeping fatalism and people vote more on what you might call values or, as it were, how they identify with this, then I think Helen is right. The Labour Lib Dem thing could still be split in the way that the Conservative Brexit Party one isn't. But we've learnt enough to know that, okay, the conventional wisdom is often wrong, but so is also people like me saying that the conventional wisdom is wrong. I mean, this election will be, among other things, as well as being somewhat terrifying and quite oppressive in some ways, completely fascinating. I agree with all that. I would say that the polling does show that uh, the public are not that concerned about what they term a technical extension. Of course, in law, there's no such thing, but a technical extension in order to deliver on Brexit. And I think the public probably understands, if they've turned their mind to it, that this piece of legislation is complicated. Three days certainly wasn't enough to get it through Parliament. And so there is a narrative that can be played out which is we're trying to do it properly we need to get everyone on board and just give us a few more weeks and we'll be there talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk about the bill itself, because <laughs> if Johnson is going to the country with let's call it a deal. I mean, I know people don't like deal, Bill, and lots of differences between them, but with his deal. But his deal is now laid out in 100-plus pages of dense potential legislation. And as you said, it's primarily Theresa May's agreement, but not exclusively, and there are significant differences. This is a sort of legal, political question. Do you think those differences could have traction when we come to an election campaign? So I watched Keir Starmer in the Commons. I have some admiration for Keir Starmer, right? I did an event with him a couple of years ago when he'd just become the shadow Secretary of State for leaving the European Union, and he seemed really kind of exhausted. And he said, this is not how I imagine spending my time. And here he is, a couple of years later, still doggedly making the case. 
And he made, I thought, a fairly persuasive case that this is quite a bad deal. But is there enough in the detail of the deal to give that case traction? I think this is where you've got to draw a distinction between the divorce and the future arrangements. And essentially, the divorce is about the money, citizens' rights and Northern Ireland. Now, what Theresa May's version of the deal essentially provided for, as we now know, though we pretended it wasn't the case at the time, was a template for what the future relationship might look like. That was the Northern Ireland backstop. The Northern Ireland backstop under her deal was the insurance policy. But under the Northern Ireland backstop, the United Kingdom as a whole would stay in some sort of customs arrangement with the EU, which actually probably was the thinking behind that was what the future template might be. Now, of course, that's all been turned off by the Boris Johnson deal. It's not entirely ruled out under the political declaration. The political declaration hasn't changed significantly, but it is merely a political declaration. And so there is quite a lot of flexibility, but there are so many bumps in the road to actually get to the point of having a successfully concluded negotiation. And that brings us to one of the big problems that Labour, I think, quite rightly see with the WAB, the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, the one that um, is going through Parliament at the moment. Or rather, is not going through Parliament at the moment, but it's hovering in limbo. It's paused at the moment, but that it's the trapdoor that if there is no future deal concluded by the end of December 2020, then the risk is we're in a no-deal scenario. Now, the complicating factor is that actually the withdrawal agreement makes clear that it's possible to extend the transition period. And just to remind you, transition period means essentially status quo, but without UK participation in institutions. But for day-to-day life, it will feel the same. Including Um, the UK will continue to pay money. Absolutely, it will continue to pay money, but it will also continue to have full access to the single market. So goods will flow, people will be able to carry on travelling at the moment. But it is possible to have an extension to that transition period of one or two years, but only one extension under the treaty, a single decision. And we've got to ask for it, and it's got to be agreed by the 1st of July 2020. So already the discussions on extending the transition will be kicking sort of March, April time. And we've got to ask for it, not in Benak terms, explicitly it's the government that has to ask for it. Parliament has to approve it, but Parliament doesn't get to ask for it. And that's one of the concerns. What happens if you've got a government that's committed to getting out with a no deal at the end of the transition? And rumours are that some cabinet ministers have been promising the ERG to get them on board with the withdrawal agreement bill, that that's what's going to happen. And of course, that's the very thing that a lot of current MPs don't want to happen. So this is what does my head in. I'm just going to say this and then Helen and Chris can come in. There's almost certainly going to have to be an election before the end of 2020. It's really hard to see how this parliament and this government could keep limping along or any alternative government. So that scenario that we're imagining would be with a different parliament. It's almost like this thinking is about there's a trapdoor here which this parliament has to guard against. But if Johnson has a majority in that parliament, these arguments are redundant. On the other hand, if Corbyn is the government in that parliament, these arguments are also redundant because he would try to come up with a new understanding. So there is this kind of weird thing going on here, which is people are trying to nail down something that's not nailed downable unless there is no election. But if there's no election, then we have no government. 
Or am I missing something? And of course, whatever, let's say there are amendments to try and avoid the trapdoor. I must say it's really difficult to draft such amendments because of a rather complicated legal arguments based on what EU law might permit. But even if you had an amendment that tries to close that trapdoor, the problem is, or the advantage, depending on your point of view, is that it, a next parliament can come along and overturn the amendment. So we need to have an election. But I think it, go, it, goes, it goes beyond that. And I think that's where uh, Keir Starmer's arguments ultimately fall down because what he was trying to say was, is, look, we are leaving the European Union and yet we will still act with certain things in place as, if you like, constitutional or quasi-constitutional safeguards as if we're not leaving the European Union. But to leave the European Union means that what have been treated, particularly must be said by the Labour Party, as constitutional safeguards against the Conservative Party in the future, doing things that the Labour Party doesn't like and wishes it not to do, end. And that those matters, including workers' rights and consumer rights and the, the things that Keir Starmer was talking about, move from constitutional politics within the EU to democratic politics in which the outcomes will be settled by elections, whether parties win majorities at elections, whether they can pass legislation through the House of Commons. If you don't want this stuff... To happen, you have to stay in the European Union. Coming out of the European Union means we are going to have democratic politics about quite a lot more things than we've got used to having democratic politics about. I think it's right that there has to be a general election. It's, it's. I think it's impossible. That's a hostage to fortune. I think it's impossible to see a government governing, going through the Queen's Speech, going through the Budget and the Finance Bill, going through Brexit without a majority in Parliament. I, I don't think this is indefinitely extensible or extendable to the end of the the parliament as timetabled by the fixed term parliament act so i think there does have to be an election but i also think it's it is more or less impossible to see beyond the horizon of that election helen is right that there may very well be a conservative overall majority it's harder to see a labor overall majority it's hard uh, i think also to see a stable labor minority government or coalition made up with deals with other parties but i think it would be a mugs game to try confidently or even unconfidently to war game what happens after that election. It's the big event on the horizon that we have to go through and then we see what it looks like on the other side. But presumably the one thing that will exist on the other side is the withdrawal agreement bill in this form. They're not going to, if Johnson wins, they're not going to redraft it. I mean, there is in a sense a commitment there. There is something that they can be held to before and after the election. So even if, if the question of will it be amendable is a question for this parliament that might fall away in the next parliament because there's a majority to pass it as it stands, it is at least, and we now have got more than three days to scrutinise it, it is at least something that essentially Johnson will have to go to the country and defend. I mean, he can't sort of say, and after the election, if there are bits of it that don't really work, we'll redo that. This thing is now, isn't it, Catherine, relatively speaking, written in, not stone, but at least it's on the paper that it's on. Yes, because you can't change it that much. You can make it more favourable, hence the rather weak provisions, it must, it must say, on workers' rights. But you can't change it significantly because otherwise it means we're not giving effect to the withdrawal agreement itself. I think what is striking about it is, first of all, it is extremely complicated. And the reason why it's complicated is it's not that much of a freestanding piece of legislation. It's largely an amendment 
bill amending the 2018 Act. And the 2018 Act, you'll remember, is the Act that essentially turned off the European Communities Act that took us into the EU domestically and also incorporated all of EU law into UK law as EU retained law and gave really quite significant Henry VIII's powers to be able to amend that legislation. Henry VIII's powers are significant powers to the executive. What's so striking about the 2019 bill, the WAB, is the sheer volume of Henry VIII's powers in that legislation. And because it's amending a lot of not just the 2018 Act, but a number of other acts, it's really difficult to read, which is why three days was never going to be enough to get it through. Also, the dog that hasn't barked is why on earth wasn't there time given to the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, to consider this piece of legislation and have a consent motion on it because it does seem to affect devolved competences and if you remember Scotland and Wales in particular felt they had been totally disregarded in the 2016-2017 period and in the run-up to the 2018 bill things have got a bit better but now you see total disregard for their position and so this is already setting up the very difficult equilibrium that you were referring to in a different context over the Scottish referendum. And presumably that will also be an issue in the election campaign but you have to assume that in the calculations going on in Downing Street, Scotland has, relatively speaking, not as an independent nation, but as a place where Conservatives win parliamentary seats, been written off. Our regular contributor, Kenneth Armstrong, has written a really interesting blog, complicated but interesting, about the relationship between this bill, the previous Act, and the original legislation that took us into the European community. It is really complicated, but there's a dance going on here. This is not just a kind of blunt instrument. It's it's quite intricate. That's right, but it is worth remembering the Conservative is a Conservative and Unionist party, and they allege that they are committed to the integrity of the Union as a whole. Of course, then there's a further dance going on vis-a-vis Northern Ireland apparently having a more favourable regime for understandable political historical reasons. But of course, Scotland feels that they haven't been listened to at all. And this will start aggravating attention that already exists. And the question then is, OK, there might not be a Scottish referendum in a year or two years' time, but within the next decade, I think it's quite likely. Well, I think that the Conservatives aren't going to write Scotland off. Well, electorally. Electorally. I mean, I think it's very hard for them, not least because Boris Johnson is personally so unpopular in, in Scotland. But there has to be a unionist party in Scotland who is going to win unionist votes. And Labour is moving away from being that party. That means is that what's left is the, the Conservatives and the, the Liberal Democrats. And in some places, the Conservatives are going to have an easier time than the Liberal Democrats. It doesn't mean they're going to win immediate seats, I think, in Scotland. They're more likely to lose them, I think, than to win them. But I don't see a scenario in which, in the medium term, the Conservative Party is giving up electorally in Scotland. So I thought you were going to say there has to be a pro-Brexit party in Scotland, because we think of Scotland as this Remain country, but it's not. It's just as divided as we are. There are a large number of people in Scotland, they're a minority, who want Brexit to happen. And they haven't got anywhere to go apart from the Conservatives, have they? Well, some of them are in the SNP. That's the other complicating factor in Scotland. I mean, probably a third of the SNP voters are actually pro-Brexit. Last question, to go back to where we started. So Helen, you've often said, and we've discussed this in relation to the Benn Act and other things, that we, we treat these things as though we take a view in this country, and then the Europeans have to do what we think, and they don't, and not with the Ben Act or anything else, these are all requests. As I said, Donald Tusk has indicated that other things being equal, the path of least resistance is not least because it wouldn't require him to get all the European leaders together again and have another big ding-dong. 
to agree to the formal request, which is for the 31st of January. But there are scenarios, and it's always been thought that the French in particular want to force the issue more than the Germans do. And, and there is an opportunity here, potentially, for leading European politicians, let's call them Macron, to push this issue by offering a shorter extension. And I think then the Benax problems come into play because there was a flaw in it. I think it was more effective than I appreciated at the time. And it's definitely shaped this whole period of British politics. I mean, the fact that that happened, which is why prorogation was such an important issue and so on, because after all, the request was made and the request is there. But a shorter extension, which I suspect this parliament would be very uncomfortable with potentially, does not give Parliament an out because if Parliament rejects that shorter extension, the default is 31st of October, is our leaving date. So a really ruthless, scrupulous and skillful French leader, let's call him Macron, could force the issue, but I'm guessing won't. I mean, these are a hostage fortune. This will go out like 12 hours after we say this. So 12 hours is a long time at the moment, but I'm guessing he's not going to force the issue in the next 12 hours, but he might. Could he? He could. I mean, I think that, that left to his own devices, Macron does want to force so the issue. He would if he could. He would if he could, I think. <laughs> but he uh, won't, because uh, he can't. And I think that there's uh, the events of the, the last few weeks have probably turned Varadkar into an ally of Macron on this issue. I think the difficulty for uh, Macron is, is that he's fighting on several other fronts at the same time. Uh, the French commissioner got rejected by the European Parliament. He's essentially vetoed beginning accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania that's caused a lot of anger in some other EU member states. There's the issue uh, of the fact that he's been trying, it would seem, to push the EU policy on Russia. He's got to deal with Merkel about China and what... Merkel basically pushing the EU, it seems, to more accommodation with um, China. This is just, Brexit is just one thing that uh, that he's um, dealing with. And the question is, is really, is is it enough in regard to his other objectives to have a confrontation with Merkel about it? My assumption is always in the end that the EU 27 will go along with the wishes of the Irish government. So in what Helen said, it's the remark about Varadkar that may be the, the most pregnant one. But uh, I think when push comes to shove, the Irish government will indicate that it doesn't want to risk any kind of no-deal outcome and the French and the other EU governments will go along with that. And I think I would add to that that's the significance of the other vote yesterday, that there was a vote, a majority in Parliament, on the second reading for the WAB, which suggests that there is a degree of movement, as we said before, in favour of the deal and the programme motion, if you look at it bluntly, it was never reasonable to think a bill of this complexity should get through in three days. And essentially that's what Parliament said. This is, I mean, there were politics too, but, you know, there's an awful lot of lawyers in Parliament and there is a, was a real sense that this is unacceptable. But it, it's not in any way trying to block Brexit, but they just say this is a complicated piece of legislation, we need time to go through it. That's not unreasonable. And actually there's a narrative to tell there for Macron, at least to give him some cover, that it looks like the UK is finally moving in the direction of signing up to the deal, both at the political level, the Boris Johnson level, but also through the parliamentary procedures. One very last question. It's a kind of blunt question to Catherine. It would be interesting to get a legal perspective on this because there's a political aspect of this too. When people look back on this period, there was this very unusual piece of legislation, the Ben Act. There isn't really anything comparable to it, not least in the way it seeks to change the nature of the relationship between the legislature and the executive. 
We've discussed it. There was some skepticism around this table about how effective it would be. I think it has been very effective, actually. But I think there are also people said they closed all the loopholes. I still think there are loopholes there. Macron wants to exploit them. He could. Do you think with hindsight, people will look at that and say that that was a good piece of legislation, that that, that act worked and provides some kind of template for the future? Or will it always be seen as a one-off? I think it's increasingly like to be seen as a one-off. It was an, it, from the Remainers' point of view, or at least the no, no dealers' point of view, it was a crucial piece of legislation done in a hurry, which was the only avenue available to it. What we have learnt is that mandating a reluctant executive to do anything is deeply problematic, and we have seen this explicitly. In this case, you know, the reluctance with which Boris Johnson has complied with it, although he did ultimately comply with it, he hasn't frustrated it with the second letter. And so I think we'll say this was probably a turning point in this saga because it did concentrate minds, because really the only way Boris Johnson could deliver on his 31st of October deadline was by having some sort of a deal. It forced him to the table. But the trouble is, it's a complicated matter. Trying to get it through in a couple of weeks just was never going to be long enough. So the, the Ben Act has at least created the possibility for an extension to get the WAB, the Withdrawal Implementation Bill, through. I still think it's an open question whether it actually was the Ben Act that um, pushed Johnson into the negotiations in which he did. It seemed to me that he did actually think about no deal in terms of a means as opposed to an end. And I think the crucial thing that actually happened in regard to the deal being, or the, the new withdrawal agreement, was actually the bilateral between Johnson and Varadkar, something that we were told wasn't going to happen because the Irish were only going to deal um, with the British via the EU and turned out actually not to be the case. We are, of course, going to come back to these questions. And if there's an election, well, we're going to be talking about that a lot. It's not all Brexit on this podcast. We've got some really interesting guests coming up. To be honest, next week will be Brexit because we're going to be talking to Rory Stewart. That's a special live recording which is happening in Westminster. It's part of the LRB's 40th anniversary celebrations. We'll be putting that up as our episode next week. But the week after that, we're going to be speaking to Esther Duflo, the economist who's just won the Nobel Prize, only the second woman to win it, the youngest person ever to win it. We're going to be talking to her about global poverty. We're also going to be talking quite soon to Michael Lewis, author of some of the best and best-selling works of non-fiction of the last 20 years. He'll be talking to us about what Trump is doing to American government. We have another one of our short films available on YouTube. This one is scripted by Oliver Bullo, the author of Moneyland. It's about how to steal a trillion dollars it's definitely worth watching go to youtube search for talking politics and you'll find it there we'll be back next week my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.